Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, Happy New Year, Center Street Church. Uh, to those of you here at uh, Central Campus, also those of you who are uh, meeting together in Airdrie, Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and also Northwest Calgary in the Crowfoot area. And of course, we also uh, just want to say welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Well, we're into a new year, a time when uh, many of us are having an out-of-money experience, uh, repenting for the excesses of Christmas, and of course, setting new resolutions. Uh, I'm told tis the season when fitness centers and weight loss programs are most jolly because their business escalates more than by three times this time of year. And uh, I'm sure many of you to, uh, uh, today have once again made a New Year's uh, resolution to get in shape. And that's wonderful, but just remember, uh, round is a shape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and just so relax and don't get all upset and quit if you're not a mean, lean fighting machine within two weeks because you won't be. Uh, See, your body and your fat, they have become really good friends. And they aren't going to want to part ways real quick. So hang in there, though. When you're discouraged, remember God loves you. And, of course, your church loves you. And in the end, that's all that's going to matter anyways, right? Right. Well, on a more serious note, uh, even though this has been a challenging year economically for Calgary, for our church, for a number of you, uh, I just want to thank you for continuing to be so faithful in your living, in your serving, and also in your giving. God is so good, continues to use us as a church to impact lives for eternity, which you heard about a moment ago. I just want to give you another example. You know, despite uh, snow right up to our knees and frigid temperatures, we still had thousands of people make their way to our Christmas Eve services, and so far... Uh, and this is just the people we know about. At least four adults and 23 children have made first-time decisions for Christ as their Savior. And I think that's something we're celebrating. Okay, well, we're in, back into the book of James. And I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to the fourth chapter where James talks about the reason that our world is so messed up. Now, you may recall at the end of chapter 3, James talks about two sources of wisdom that people base their lives on. Some people base their lives on heavenly wisdom or wisdom that comes from God, and some base their lives on earthly wisdom, which is, in, according to verse 16, James says, is characterized by envy and selfish ambition and often leads to disorder and every evil practice. Well, I believe that the quarrels and fights that James writes about here in chapter 4, which we're going to read in a moment, is another illustration of what happens when we live according to the wisdom of this world. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me and join me in reading uh, this next passage together. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. 
When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for inspiring James to write these words. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand not only the intention behind these words, but Lord, also what it means to each of our lives. Pray, Lord, that you'd help us to focus, that you would soften our hearts, and Lord, you'd give us the courage to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. So James starts out this passage asking, what causes fights and quarrels among you? In other words, why is there so much conflict in our world? Why are relationships at work often so difficult? Why is it so hard to get along in our marriages and our families, even our churches? Why do we have murderous thoughts on our roadways during rush hour traffic? What's behind all of this? What causes conflicts in our relationships? Well, in verse 1, James writes, Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? The word desire in this verse comes from the Greek word from which we get the word hedonism. Hedonism means to have a strong desire to satisfy ourselves. It's a selfish mindset where life is all about me and about my happiness. In other words, it's a view of life that says, I'm at the center of the universe. And so there is a much deeper battle that's going on here that James is describing, a battle around the question, who am I going to trust in this life? Who or what will be the source of my significance my value and fulfillment in life. How we answer these questions will determine what is really important to us and what we're going to desire in life. If our trust is in God and God alone, then he will be the source of our wisdom and direction in life. And we will find our identity in him. Because our significance and value comes from God, we're set free from always looking out for our own interests. And we actually begin to be transformed and start putting the interests of others ahead of ourselves, which usually results in healthy and peaceful relationships. On the other hand, if, if I don't believe in God, if I don't trust God at all, then by default, I've decided to be my own God which means it's all about me. 
It's all about what I need from other people. What I need from my spouse, what I need from my parents, what I need from my children, what I need from my friendships. Me, me, me. In short, my life is defined by selfishness and selfish ambition. And since I'm my own God, if I'm going to find significance and fulfillment in life, well, then I'm going to have to do it. No one else is going to do that for me. Practically, that means for me to be happy and to feel valuable, I have to have my own way. Now, here's the thing. If people just did what we wanted them to do when we wanted them to do it, life would be amazingly peaceful. But the chances of that happening are pretty meager. I mean, ask yourself... Your baby wakes up at 2 a.m. in the morning, hungry and with a loaded diaper. How likely do you think this little darling will say to himself, you know, I'm really uncomfortable right now, but it's 2 o'clock in the morning. Mom and Dad must be really tired right now. So think, I'll just wait until morning to scream. <laughs> How likely do you think that will happen? Not a chance. That little bundle of joy will scream until he gets the detention that he deserves. You see, that's just the reality in our world. That's when it starts. Bring even just two people together, just two, who are set on having their own way. And there's going to be tension, even fireworks. And that's the point that James makes here. He says, you get angry. He says, you covet, you quarrel and fight. In fact, you will slander and kill someone's reputation. And in extreme situations, some of you will even take another person's life. Because you cannot get what you want to have. Now, if you don't believe that's true for you, if you don't think that you're responsible for what's wrong in the world, I mean, after all, you are sitting in church... If you don't think this applies to you, well, then the next time you find yourself angry with another person, ask yourself, am I upset right now because I didn't get something I wanted? Am I upset right now because someone didn't affirm me? Because someone didn't promote me? Because someone didn't include me? Because someone didn't listen to me in my point of view? Because someone didn't respect me? Because someone didn't honor me? Because someone didn't recognize all my hard work? Am I envious right now because someone seems to have a better life than I do? Because someone seems to have nicer things than I do? Because someone seems to have a more attractive and devoted spouse than I do? Because someone has more friends than I do or seems to have a happier family than I do? And you see, if you would answer yes to any of those, then you're on the same page as everyone else on this planet. It's hard to admit, of course, but you want the world to revolve around you. You want people to admire you, to serve you, to please you, to honor you. And when they don't, you get some upset. 
and so do I. And yet God never intended for the world to revolve around us. Life isn't about us. It's about God. He's the center of the universe. And until he's the center of our lives, we will never be free from all the striving, the emptiness, and the subtle and not-so-subtle competing that goes on between us, and all of the anger and the selfish ambition and the envy and the greed and the pride and the relational conflict that tends to accompany it. Now, in verses 3 to 6, James moves on from talking about the cause of conflict to the cost that comes when you put yourself rather than God at the center of the universe. The first cost is this. Your prayers will go unanswered. James says you do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, we all have legitimate God-given needs. And God has promised to meet all of our legitimate needs if we ask. Unfortunately, when we put ourselves at the center of the universe, we don't ask. Because, you see, our trust is in ourselves to meet our needs rather than in God. In fact, the quality of our prayer life, if you think about it, is really a reflection of who we're trusting in. If we don't pray much, then guess who we're trusting to meet our needs? It sure isn't God. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And in verse 3 he says, even if you do ask, it is nothing more than an attempt to manipulate God to give you your self-centered desires. Instead of praying, Lord, I trust you. I know that you're enough for me. We're essentially praying, Lord, I am so convinced that this opportunity over here or, or this relationship or, or this material possession is going to bring me true fulfillment. So please, God, Give it to me. It's like a wife coming to her husband and saying, I don't love you anymore. I found true love in the arms of another man. And then asking her husband if he would pay for the new home that she and her, her new lover will be living in. I mean, isn't that ridiculous? This is essentially, though, what we do when we are worshiping other counterfeit gods and asking God to support us in it. James refers to it in verse 4 as spiritual adultery. He says, you adulterous people. Man, he doesn't pull any punches, does he? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us? 
See, when we enter into a relationship with God, it is far more than just getting our ticket to heaven. Becoming a Christ follower is about entering into an intimate, loving relationship with Jesus. James is saying, you have to understand that God is jealous for you. He's crazy about you. He yearns for you. He wants to have a loving friendship with you. But when we determine to be our own God, to become a friend of the world and make some counterfeit idol the object of our highest affection, we're having a a spiritual affair. And you see, that puts you in conflict with God because he won't share the throne of your life with anything or anyone. And consequently, says James, you won't receive anything from the Lord when you pray with an adulterous heart like that. James says, count the cost. Count the cost. When we put ourselves instead of God at the center of the universe, not only will our prayers go unanswered, but secondly, we're putting ourselves in opposition with God. Look at verse 6. James writes, God opposes the proud, but shows favor or gives grace to the humble. You know, I can think of many things in this world I wouldn't want opposing me. I wouldn't want Sidney Crosby opposing me in a hockey game. I wouldn't want Bill Gates opposing me in an auction. But you know, that's nothing compared to the thought of God opposing me. And yet James says, when I'm full of pride, when my passions are on things other than God, that is exactly what I can expect. When I'm determined to do what I want to do rather than what God's calling me to do, I can know I'm putting myself in opposition with God. When I pick and choose what I'm going to follow and what I'm not, what I'm going to explain away in the scriptures, I'm finding myself in opposition with God. And all through the scriptures, you know, it's clearly evident that nothing evokes the wrath of God more than the arrogance and stubborn pride on our part. Not because he delights in opposing us, but because as our lover, he loves us so much to let us go our own way and to destroy our lives. He has eternity in mind, not just the, the years that we spend here on earth. Which leads us to the cure. We've looked at the cause. We've looked at the cost. And now we're going to look at the cure to conflict in relationships. And the cure is simply humility. James says, God opposes the proud but shows favor or grace to the humble. Pride is keeping God at a safe, comfortable distance where you say, you know what, God, I, I've got this. You know, I, I'm doing okay. So, so you can just stay right over there. Don't go too far, though, because once in a while I'm going to ask, to ask you for forgiveness. 
And every once in a while, there might be an emergency or a crisis that comes along, and I'll probably need you then. But, you know, other than that, I got this. That's pride. And James says, God opposes that kind of mentality. Because again, he's not just your ticket to heaven. He's your lover. But he gives grace to the humble. Down in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. To be humble means I do not have an inflated spirit. Means I believe to the core of my being that he's God and I'm not. Humility is admitting that we don't have it all together. I love the story of the elderly man and woman who met in a nursing home. They were both residents there and they started eating meals together and over time he became quite taken with her. And so after much thought, one particular evening at dinner, he asked her to marry him. And of all things, she said yes. Well, the next morning he got up and he remembered he'd asked her to marry him, but he couldn't remember her answer. (laughs) So he went and he found her at the breakfast table and he said, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed to ask you this, but I know I asked you last night to marry me. My problem is I can't remember whether you said yes or no. She said, well, I'm so glad that you asked. I, I answered yes, but I couldn't remember who asked me. Yeah. You know, it's hard for most of us admit, to admit we don't have it all together. You know, and sometimes we don't see the ugliness of pride or the beauty of humility until we're really old. Look down at verse 14. James says, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Humility acknowledges that God is all-powerful and I'm not. That God is all-knowing and all-wise and I'm not. That he's the center of the universe, and I'm not. That he's the creator, and I'm the creation. He's the potter, I'm, I'm the clay. You know, the reason there's so much anger and relational conflict and carnage in our world is because there's just too little humility in our hearts. We're still far too much in love with ourselves and wanting to have our own way. James goes on to explain how to cure relational conflict through a life of humility. The first cure for relational conflict, he writes in verse 7, is to submit yourself to God. Now the word submit is a military term which means to arrange yourself under your commander. I mean, just imagine a commanding officer calling his troops to attention and they immediately assemble under his authority and they come to attention. 
Brian Clark says, this is where it all starts. Humility acknowledges that you got yourself in this mess because you decided that you were going to be in charge. You decided that you were going to give yourself value. You were going to give yourself significance and fulfillment. That you would demand from your spouse and your children, your parents, your friends, people at work, that they would make you happy. Well, how's that working for you? Submitting to God says, all right. I acknowledge I'm making a mess of things. Me being in charge isn't working. I can't save this marriage. I can't change my partner. I can't fix my son or daughter. So I'm going to surrender. God, from now on, you're in charge, not me. Your will be done, not mine. Change me, Lord. The second cure for relational conflict is resisting the devil. The word resist is also a military term. It means to be alert, to be prepared, to take your stand against an attack. We have to understand that the devil wants to destroy every good thing in your life. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your family, your friendships. He wants to destroy your very life. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. He plays on our pride. He tells us what we want to hear. He whispers temptations and lies into our ear. He deceives us. He tempts us to go against every good thing that God calls us to be and to do. He tempts us to retaliate, to get even, and to do what feels good rather than what is good and pleasing and right in the sight of God. And once we give in to his temptations, oh boy, he pulls out the big guns and he begins to accuse us. He tells you, you've blown it. You're done. It's too late. You're never going to make it now. There's no hope for redemption. You may as well just give up. Church, stop resisting God and start resisting the devil. Give him no foothold in your life. Resisting him begins by acknowledging I got into the mess that I'm in because I've been listening to and believing the wisdom of the world and of the enemy. To resist means to stand up and to say, I'm not going to listen to those voices anymore because I see how deceptive and how untrue they really are. And James says, when you take your stand like that, the devil will flee from you. A third cure for relational conflict is to draw near to God. Again, James says in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
A Bible commentator says that this is a picture of a husband standing in the doorway calling out to his bride who has been having an affair and saying to her, I am not just asking you to give up the affair. I'm pleading with you to come home because I love you. I love you and I want us to be close again. Please, just come home. Just come home. God invites us to come near to him. To be honest and to be open with him. To take a step of faith toward him regardless of whatever we have done. And he will meet us there. And then finally, another cure for relational conflict is genuine repentance. You can't draw near to God or really can't draw near to anyone without real honesty and without genuine repentance. Verse 8, James, he describes what genuine repentance looks like. He says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And James says, if you're engaged in some sin, then clean it up. Wash your hands. Stop doing it. Genuine repentance means to stop, to turn around, and to go the other way. Genuine repentance involves purifying our hearts. Now, the truth is that only God can genuinely and truly purify our hearts from sin. But you see, that's not what James is referring to here. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, those of you who are trying to live on both sides of the fence. He's saying, no. Purify your hearts. Get focused on the main thing. Get focused on God. And living all out for Him. Living a life that's fully devoted to Him. Genuine repentance involves mourning and weeping. In other words, we have to feel deeply about the pain of our sin. This is the painful awareness that I've been breaking God's heart. And I no longer want to do that. It's what the Apostle Peter felt after he denied Jesus three times. The Bible says he went outside and he wept bitterly. He was grieving, he was mourning, he was humbling himself over his sin. This isn't saying, by the way, that there is never going to be any more joy or laughter. And people read this and you say, see, you know, you become a Christ follower and there goes your joy and your laughter. No, folks. The reality is there won't be genuine joy. I mean, genuine joy and laughter until we realize how destructive our sin is, how much it grieves our Lord. And when we bring it into the light and we own it, and we admit that we're wrong and confess it to God, then there is joy and laughter. Amen? Amen. Then we're set free. 
So many people are miserable today because they're trying to hide their sin, cover it over. You know, I'm convinced that one of the greatest struggles that we have in life is humbling ourselves before God and others. Sadly, sometimes we, we don't get there until we're old. And for some people, they never get there. And that is so unfortunate because until we genuinely humble ourselves, there will be no peace in our relationships. There won't be any peace between us and God, between us and others. And there won't be any peace inside. Not true peace. Recently, a pastor said this to his church. He said, you want to know how we could turn our church into the most humble and non-judgmental group of people in the world? If we could bolt the doors and broadcast on the video screen in living color the 10 biggest secret sins that each of us have committed in our lives, frame by frame. Do you know what would happen, he said, if everyone were to see that? Every one of us would be filled with tears of repentance and humility. Because everything would be out there. Everything would be exposed. The lies, the slanders, the sins, the envy, the greed, the selfish ambition, the dishonesty, the people we've hurt. It'd all be out there. And then he said, I don't think there would be an arrogant or judgmental person left in this place. You know, someone has written, it is my pride that makes me independent of God. It's appealing to me to feel that I am the master of my fate, that I run my own life, call my own shots, and go it alone. The truth is, I can't ultimately rely on myself. I am dependent on God for my very next breath. It is dishonest of me to pretend that I am anything but a mortal man, small, weak, and limited. So living independent of God is self-delusion. What I pretend, when I pretend to be God and not man, I'm lying to myself about who I really am. In verse 10 here, God gives us this promise. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. That means he will give you the grace that you need. All the grace you need to do what you feel you can't do, but what he wants you to do. When you wake up tomorrow, he's going to give you even more grace to do what he's calling you to do. And next week and next month, our loving, generous, almighty God is going to give you even more grace because he loves to give grace to the humble. But that requires not partial surrender. That requires complete and total surrender. To surrender, surrender is to humble yourself and to repent, to turn your back on the wisdom of this world, the enemy of your soul, 
and to fully embrace Jesus Christ, the lover of your soul. It is to acknowledge you don't have the power in yourself, by yourself, to find victory over the desires that battle and rage within you. It's deciding I don't want God opposing me any longer. I've made a mess of things and I don't want to be this way. I don't want to live this way any longer. I'm done listening to the lies of my culture, the lies of the enemy. I'm surrendering all to Jesus. And when you do, he will lift you up. He will lift you up. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Let's just open our hands before the Lord again. Now it's time to bring this home to where we live and where we are. And the two questions are this, Lord, what are you saying to me? Not to anyone else, but what are you saying to me? And then, Lord, what is it that you want me to do about it? you're wondering what's keeping you from letting go from acknowledging that you can't solve things on your own power that you need God's grace it is grace that he offers you to do what you can't do if you feel God prompting you to respond to what you've heard, to step out, to settle this, to say enough already to the life that you've been living, to the path you've been on, to make some changes, I'm going to invite you to do what I invite you to do almost every service. And that is just to make your way up here to the front to spend some time with God. We're just going to wait for a few minutes and then I'll close. Respond, friend, to whatever it is he's saying to you. Humility means you will give him your entire life. It's total surrender.
our Heavenly Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us so much to be really honest with us, exposing, Lord, the motivations and the things that sometimes clearly reveal to us that we're going in a, a, a we're going in a direction, Lord, that one day we're going to deeply regret. Thank you for loving us so much. be honest with us and to be direct with us. Thank you for giving us your grace and Lord, your word says right here that you give us more grace. You're a father who who stands at the doorway and says, son, please come home. You pursue us, you never quit loving us. Lord, in the midst of these difficult words, I pray that every person here would be drawn to your love and grace and recognize that you are a Father that loves us with an everlasting love. Give us the courage, give us the will, Lord, to do what's right. surrender all to you, Lord, because we'll never regret doing that. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.